Hi guys, thanks for coming back tonight. We're so excited to have you. We're really excited about tonight and um, kicking off of where we started last week, really getting into some of the historic revivals tonight. Um, but first we wanna do a little bit of review over what we went over last week for anyone who might've missed it. So last week we focused a lot on looking over the seasons that we are, are in globally. We looked at what are the times we're living in and then we looked specifically at what is the activity of God in our life. And we spent time doing activity, praying with the Lord, reflecting on, Lord, where do you have me? What is the season I'm in? Am I in a season of rest, a season of joy, a season of mourning, of building or tearing down? We talked a little bit about what it means to discern those seasons and then how we receive the flow of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God to walk well in that activity of the Lord in our life so that we can be obedient to the will of God in our life. Um, and so we just wanted to open that up to you guys if you had any testimonies, because I had people personally write me, so if anyone would want to share um, what you experienced from last week, or if, if the Lord revealed to you the season you were in, or if you had any breakthrough in understanding that, we just want to open that to you guys and invite you to testify to what God did. Amen. All right, well, I think if you want to open in prayer, we'll, we'll get started. All right. Father, we just thank you that you are in this house, God. Lord, we thank you that we can see your hand in our lives, God. Lord, we can see your hand in our church, Father, but we can see your hand on our nation and in our nation. Father, that, that you are on the move. You're on the move in our lives, God, and you're speaking and moving and changing and transforming. Father, I just ask that, um, Holy Spirit, you would come ever so close tonight that you would just come in and breathe on the words that are spoken here, that they would bring, um, bring life and hope and transformation to the hearts that hear. God, that, that you would soften hardened ground in our lives. God, that, that you would bring to the surface the things that don't belong in your presence, God, in our lives, that, that we would be quick and obedient to skim it away. Father, um, Lord, we know that you are you have us in this place of metamorphosis we know that we are in this place in this season of changing into becoming more like you um father and i just ask that that tonight as you speak that you would speak to each heart as if they're the only one in the room god that that whatever is in the way of transformation in my life or in any other life, is, is that it would be revealed and dealt with, God. Lord, because we want all of you. We want all that you are to be all of who we are, God. So Holy Spirit, just come in with a soft, gentle, merciful touch of revealing hardened hearts and revealing places of transformation that needs to come. God, we just thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are in this house, that you are speaking and moving. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of the reasons we're super excited about tonight is because Alan is going to share a little bit with us tonight. And so he's going to kick us off talking about some of the historic revivals. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to do just America or a little bit abroad as well, but he's going to just highlight a couple revivals and like the state of the nation before the revival, about the revival, maybe a little bit about the controversy that came from that. And we're really going to use that as a place to launch forward into what happens when God is on the move. So without further ado, Alan, come up and share with us. Yeah, it's 
<laughs> well, I mean, these these like small intimate groups. It's always weird to be like on the stage with the lights on you, and you know everyone's in their pajamas. You know, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> so, um, well, whenever they asked me to share, I was kind of praying. I, I was really glad that they asked me to share on this particular topic because they said, don't just share about the revivals, but share about the, the messy stuff. And that's my favorite thing to talk about. And the, the reason why is because I think one of the greatest travesties in church, in church, whether it's just church in general or in church history, is that we always sugarcoat everything. And if you look at church history in particular, you re- I talk about this all the time. But if you read history books or you read biographies of missionaries, which I've read all of them, like tons of them, they always, for the most part, I would say 99% of them only tell you the good stuff. They only tell you the miracles. They only tell you all the wonderful things that happened. They only tell you how incredible the man or woman of God was and all the miracles they did. And they, they rarely will go into the actual humanity of things that were happening. And so for me, uh, I'm going to be sharing some, just a few things. I'm, I'm not the main person tonight, but I'm just sharing a little bit. I'm kid- kicking us off with just on three different revivals. And I'm going to share just the human failures and the human sides of some of these huge revivals. And because we have a tendency to idolize them, and I think the big danger there is whenever we idolize a person or we idolize even a revival, we often cut ourselves off from to the ability to experience that because we will never be good enough. We will, we will never get to that point. And that's, I am convinced that the reason these revivals broke out is largely because the people who were leading them understood that it was literally all by grace, that they were just human beings who just happened to be willing and available and understood they couldn't earn it. I think us thinking we can earn it by becoming like these people is what cuts us off from the ability to actually receive it. And so uh, I'm just going to share, like I said, three different revivals. The first one, how many of you heard of the Lakeland Revival, Lakeland, Florida in 2008? So in 2008 in Lakeland, Florida was probably, no, not probably, it was the biggest revival to hit the United States in the 2000s. So far, it was massive. Uh, it was led by a man named Todd Bentley, who Todd Bentley was, is now like a disgraced minister, a disgraced evangelist, but he was the mega evangelist of the early 2000s. And he was a man who started out back in the, this was probably about the 90s, he got saved. He had been a drug addict, got saved, and just completely was set on fire for Jesus. And he wanted to see revival. And so he started seeking God, and he would pray eight hours a day while working as a logger. He was, he's Canadian, so he would go work on the logging line. He, was, he had to handle the chains and pull the logs off and all what, that kind of stuff. And then he would go home, and he would just pray for eight hours straight. That was his goal because he had read statistically. It's funny to talk about statistics and revival, but statistically, if you look at the men and women of God who led revivals, on average, they all pray about four hours a day, every single one of them across the board. And he said that he wanted to get it faster than everyone else. So he decided to pray eight hours a day. So he would just pray and pray and pray. And it only in three months, within three months, major revival started breaking out and all kinds of wild miracles. I won't go through his whole story, but basically in 2008, Lakeland happened. And whenever Lakeland happened, they had a reported 25 people raised from the dead in 2008. 
they had 30,000 people coming to the church that they were in in Lakeland every single month. Like that's from a hundred different countries. People were flying from all over the world. And that's not counting the hundreds of thousands of people that were watching it streaming live every single night. And so all of these crazy, there was gold dust falling, every kind of healing miracle you can imagine was happening. There were angels appearing. They talked about, there were some of the, this is one that's a little bit closer to me actually, because I actually know Todd, he just wrote me yesterday. I mean, we still, we email back and forth. I've met him. We've had dinner together. So he's actually someone that I know. So, so I, I preface this by saying, I'm not bashing any of these people. Whenever I say what I'm saying about them, like this is just, I want you to see how human these things are, these people are in the revivals. They would have cases where instruments would be playing by themselves, like angels would be playing the instruments. There would be no one on stage and the instruments would start moving and playing and all kinds of really wild miracles were happening during Lakeland. But what people didn't know was behind the scenes, Todd and his wife, Shauna, they were going through marriage counseling. Their marriage had been falling apart ever since he became famous. It had been falling apart more and more, and they weren't sleeping in the same room anymore. They were barely talking. Their marriage was a sham. They were completely falling apart. And that revival, he preached every single night for all of 2008, the whole year he was preaching, every single night. And these are not like our Sunday morning services that are an hour and a half and you're out. These were services that would start at like five and would end at one in the morning. These are revival services, very different. And they, he, was, he was just doing this every single night. His marriage was completely falling apart. And because he was a man who, he was a man of integrity. He was a man who really loved God. And so financially, he was making sure all of his people were well paid. And he was just getting a very modest salary. He lived in a very modest home. And so he had all these financial things happening. He was do, had he had started. I think it was thirty businesses that were all running simultaneously while he was leading this revival, and it was all falling apart at what was the absolute peak of his ministry. People were being raised from the dead, and he's going through marriage counseling. He started to have uh, be attracted to his nanny. The girl, the girl who was taking care of his children because he was gone all the time and his wife had a lot of health problems, so she couldn't take care of the kids on her own. So they had this nanny who was always there helping. And he ends up having feelings for his nanny. And out of the blue, one day at the very peak of this revival in 2008, all of a sudden he doesn't show up for church. He goes and files for divorce, abandons his wife, and has an affair with his nanny all within like 24-hour period. And so everyone was so confused because they're seeing this man that they have just idolized. I mean, where he goes, God shows up. But the reality was he was just a human being who was burnt out, was not taking a rest when he should have. And when conversations that I've had with him and just because there's a lot of stuff that he has shared publicly, you know what happened was he was so burned out. He was so tired that instead of praying his eight hours a day that he would, he tried to maintain, he was so tired. He would just sit down and watch movies and he just watched movies. And then he started drinking and it just all started and then his marriage. Of course was falling apart. It all just started going downhill, downhill, downhill. And he was just a guy and he needed a break. He probably needed a vacation. Some of the, it was just a simple thing that could have easily been remedied. But instead, because people had put him on a pedestal and this massive revival, and there's so much pressure that comes with revival to sustain it, 
that he just burnt and crashed and Lakeland pretty much fizzled out almost immediately. After all that happened, it was just done. And that's the most recent revival, big, big revival we've had here in the States that was globally heard about. And that was just 2008. People talk about how miracles don't happen here in the States. They do. They happen all the time. And so that's one of the revivals that I wanted to share with you, just the, the, the humanity behind it. So the next one, this is actually a couple hundred years ago. This is in England. This is the Salvation Army revival. How many of you know, I mean, you've seen Santa right in front of Walmart. Well, that's the Salvation Army today. But when the Salvation Army started, it was started by a man named William Booth. And William Booth, he was actually just a normal guy. And he went to church. He thought he was a good guy. He believed he, he was convinced he was going to heaven. It was all great. And one night he had a dream. And it was completely out of the blue. It was one of those sovereign things that God does. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. It just happened. And he had this dream where he saw himself die. He was really sick and he died. And then he saw himself go to heaven. And he was so excited because he thought, oh, I'm going to heaven. And I'm going to have my reward and it's going, be, it's going to be wonderful. And he got to heaven. He made it. But there was an angel who had the book about his life, not the book of life, but you know, the Bible talks about their books of everyone's lives and everything that you do is written down. Everything you say is written down. And so he gets there and the angel has the book of his life in his hand. And, but he said the angel looked sad and he didn't understand why this angel looked so sad. And so the angel came, opened up the book and let him see it, let him see the book of his life. And while all the sin had been erased, it had been wiped away by the blood of Jesus. So the only thing that was left of his life was the things that he had done for the Lord, just complete, just serving the Lord, everything else, that was it. Everything else had been wiped away. And because of that, page after page was almost completely empty. There were only a few, there's a paragraph here, a few sentences there, but the book of his life was almost entirely empty because it had all been wiped away by the blood of Jesus because it was all selfish. And this was just, he was just your average churchgoer. <clears throat> so he wakes up from this dream, completely radically changed. And all of a sudden he realized that is not how I want it to be when I go to heaven. So he started the Salvation Army and it was it, who know who who knows the under the the mentality behind it? But he was the general general booth, and he had captains and sergeants, and it was it was a pretty incredible structure. It's very unique; has never been done since, as far as I know. And he brought people in, and the way he started the way he started his ministry was he got a donkey, and he because England at that time was full of sin, and there were orphans everywhere. Children were, were being abandoned on the streets everywhere. So he would take a donkey, and he would take, walk them down the alley to draw the kids out of where they were living on the streets. And they would come, and he would give them free rides on, these, on this donkey. And what he would do is he would offer them a free ride, but he would take them to church, for children's church. And he would just bring them in, and then he would do a children's church program with them. That's how he started. He would just play with all these kids, and he was bringing kids to the Lord. And it was, this re it was just booming. People started joining the Salvation Army, and it started growing and growing. And then they started branching out into uh, feeding people and giving clothes to people, which is more what they're known for now. And they started doing all of these. Uh, they're known for their humanitarian stuff. But they started preaching the gospel. They would build platforms in the streets, and they would start preaching. And they had some of the most unique training for their ministers because they would just bring in anyone. 
and they didn't have schools like is kind of really known to even what we do in, in found. They didn't have that. What they did was if you became a Christian, and wanted to join the army, they would make you get on a platform in the roughest part of town, start preaching and the ministers would heckle you. That's how they trained you to deal with it. They would make fun of you and argue with you while you were trying to preach to train you for what other people would do to you. And they would purposefully try to just drill you the whole time. And that's how they trained their ministers. But it was during this time in England that it, there was so much alcoholism. There was so many, especially fatherless children that were all over the streets, that the persecution that broke out against them was incredibly strong. Uh, William Booth, he would gather people together and they would do these marches in all of their uniforms because they had uniforms and badges and everything. And they would march as a group into the center of a city and they would kneel down and they would they would uh, uh, proclaim that city for the Lord. And then they would break up into groups and start preaching everywhere. And the people hated it. It was so bad. People would come out and they would dump buckets of blood, animal blood on them. They would throw uh, cat intestines at them. The store, this is how that the Salvation Army was so hated that the grocery stores would save their rotten eggs and sell them to people to throw at the members of the Salvation Army. And they called them every time one of them got beaten up or had something thrown at them, they wouldn't wash the uniform. They would actually, they had the uniforms that they would keep outside and then their indoor clothes and their indoor uniforms. Because the, the ones that were on the outside that were covered in stains and stank, they said that they were the ones that were covered in badges of honor, uh, medals of honor. So they saw every stain, everything as a medal of honor. And so they would leave it. And it, they, so they were, they were so intense and so on fire. And they had so many miracles during that time that, for example, and I've, I know I've told this story before, but the, they primarily they would reach out to miners, like coal miners and people who were like in factories. And during this revival, so much was completely transformed that they had to uh, Re, bars would completely shut down. Like there were cities that the, there was not a bar in town. The, as a matter of fact, they even had, uh, I'm just trying to make sure in my, I'm just trying, trying to make sure I don't have the revivals mixed up, but I believe it was in this one where the, there was rugby was this rugby is a huge sport in England and Europe. And there was a rugby championship that was supposed to take place. And they, England had the champion team. It was this massive event and nobody showed up to the game. Because on on their Super Bowl day, nobody went to the stadium. There was an it was just the players playing by themselves because everyone went to go hear the the, the revivals that were happening. And this was it was during this time that the miracle of the stoop that I talk about all the time would happen, where they would be having these revivals and farmers because they primarily reached out to lower income people. The farmers who had to they had to wake up at three four in the morning to work their farms. They would work all day and then they would have to take their horses to the meetings. And they would show up at church, and these revival meetings would go all night. And so these farmers, they would go to the meetings. They wanted to go to church. They would go to these prayer meetings. And then when it was over, they knew they were going to have to ride all the way home and would get no sleep because they were going to have to ride home. By the time they got home, it was time to work again. But God would do this miracle where they would walk. And it was in, there's newspapers and clippings and everything of it where they would walk through the doorway of the church 
and walk in. When they stepped across the threshold, they would walk, walk into their homes. And this happened at nightly. This was a regular miracle that happened. It was just a common miracle that happened. It was like one of their lower miracles that happened during those revivals. And also William Booth was so intense that people had to get saved. They always did altar calls and they wouldn't stop unless someone got saved. And they were, they, it was a huge thing. So the, the unsaved people would sit in the back rows sometimes and William Booth, the way that they did it, this is where we get a lot of our old school, the old school churches where they have the chairs in the back where all the elders and stuff sit. A lot of that came from the Salvation Army because that's what they would do. And the reason why is because all of those guys, their job was to, was to watch and pray the entire service. It wasn't because they were so important. It was because they were generals and they were commanders and they had to be watching what the, what the Lord was doing and what the enemy was doing and be on watch so that they could call the people in the corners, the other ministers, to tell them what to do. They were basically scouts in a sense. And so they would all sit up there. And when William Booth did his altar call, if people didn't come forward, he would yell at them because they weren't praying hard enough. And he'd, be, he'd say, pray, pray. And when they all started praying, they would all pray real loud. And when that happened, the spirit of God would come down and the, the sinners in the back, God or whatever it was, the Holy Spirit or angels, nobody knows, but they would be physically lifted out of their seats. They would float over the congregation and be dropped in front of the pulpit and, of course, get saved because they were terrified. <laughs> and this, this was a regular occurrence during these movements of the Salvation Army. And most of us have heard at least about revivals and we hear about some of the miracles, but again, the humanity part, right? The Salvation Army was not perfect. There were all kinds of problems in the Salvation Army. One of the biggest issues in the Salvation Army is they were ridiculously controlling and ridiculously strict. Uh, for example, they were, it's seemingly completely against any kind of romantic relationship. They saw it as a distraction. They didn't think it should happen. So if, if a young man and young woman were interested in each other, like, you know, you two, like if they showed any interest, they would be expelled from the army because they were considered, they were being distracted by things of the world instead of things of the Lord. That's how they saw it, which is ridiculous. It's unscriptural. But that's what they believed. And so everything, every, there were relationships, there were marriages, but they were completely controlled by the leaders. If you were a captain or an officer of any kind, you were not allowed to marry anyone who was not an officer in the army. You had to marry another officer. Otherwise, you were expelled. They would expel people like that. If you, you had to do exactly what they said when they said it or you were out. And so they had really serious control issues. Also, that, that religiosity that they had, what, it, it hindered them in a lot of ways. Thankfully, William Booth, he was often not the one enforcing these things. This is, we, we see these a lot in movements, particularly revivals. There will be one or two men or women of God that are really on fire. But when you have a massive movement, that one person is not seeing everything. They're just human. So they have people under them, but those people often, they didn't pay the same price. So they just want the power and they can, they will destroy what the Lord is doing. And so for example, uh, the Salvation Army for the most part and Christians in general, this was when automobiles were being invented. They were convinced that automobiles were from the devil, that it was the mark of the beast. 
and I know many of you have heard me talk about this before, that the church always thinks every new technology is the mark of the beast. Every single time. Every single, everything new is the mark of the beast. And so they thought the automobile was the mark of the beast because of, of course it is. And, but it was William Booth who saw the potential. He said he saw the potential to reach the people, reach people with the gospel further and faster. And so he took a huge risk of his reputation and he got in an automobile. It's one of the first recorded videos that you can watch. You can see it on YouTube. And William Booth, he gets in a little auto, automobile and he just like drives around the block. And they were, it was a newsworthy thing because General William Booth was going to get into the mark of the beast. And, he, and it was because of him that Christians became okay with going and driving in cars because of William Booth. It, was, it, was, it seems ridiculous now, but that's how it was. Movie theaters were considered the devil and because they were a complete, they were a distraction. Anything that you did that was not praying and seeking God and reading your Bible was from the devil as far as they were concerned. And so that caused a lot. It, it may not be as big of an issue as the Lakeland thing, but we need to understand the, the reality of the humanity that people, they want power, they want control. And uh, it, it was... William Booth was awesome, but his captains and all that kind of stuff, there were all kinds of issues. And what happened was after he died, those people who hadn't paid the price that he paid, they took over. This is what happens. They, uh, they've done lots of studies of massive uh, missionary or church organizations, and usually once the founder dies, the vision starts to go off. And that's what happened. He died, and they essentially, if you read, if you go on the Salvation Army website, and you read William Booth's story, they downplay everything spiritual, supernatural that happened to William Booth. They call, he called it that he said that he had a vision. They say that he had a dream or an experience. They make it very, very human. And the Salvation Army has gone completely off of his heart and his dream, and they've just become Santa ringing bells. They wear the same name, but it is not the same organization at all. And they've just become a humanitarian organization. And so that's what, unfortunately, William Booth, a lot of these big leaders, there's nothing against them, a lot of them are not good at duplicating themselves. And they get caught up in ministry, and they don't disciple people and teach them how to do the same thing that they were doing. So when they die, there's no Elisha to take over. All right, so the third one. I want to talk about the Azusa Street Revival as well. So the Azusa Street Revival, if you don't know, it happened in Los Angeles, Los Angeles, California in 1906. And so up until 1901, people didn't speak in tongues. It was not a gift that was normal. It was only a few handful of Catholic nuns and monks spoke in tongues. It had completely faded out from, especially among the Protestants and evangelicals, that's us. Uh, they, it was just considered a demonic or a Catholic thing. And so in 1901, there was a man named Charles Parham who wanted to see Pentecost happen again. So he and a group of students, he had Bible school, he and his group of Bible students, they sought God. God responded, came down, and Agnes Olsman in 1901, she was a young woman, spoke in tongues. It's the first recorded person, uh, speaking, non-Catholic person speaking in tongues in American history. She spoke in tongues for the first time. It was awesome. There was wind and supernatural light and all this crazy stuff that happened whenever she did this. She speaks in tongues, and Pentecostalism is born. And this movement of seeking God and understanding that he actually moves and speaks to us today happens. 
Well, this, these revivals sweep across the world. Azusa Street happens. Uh, sorry, the, this Charles Parham, his revivals are going on. We have Alexander Dowie. We have John G. Lake. We have uh, Evan Roberts over in Wales. All the, the Hebrides revivals, all these different revivals start happening within just a few years because of 1901, whenever Charles Parham, is, it all branched out of this. God just exploded everywhere. And so 1906, there's a young man, a young black man named William Seymour. William Seymour is blind in one eye and he's black during the Jim Crow laws. Like this was during the time when segregation was at its peak, where uh, blacks and whites, they had to drink from different water fountains and the people who were black had to sit in the back of the bus and like all this horrible racist stuff that was happening. William Seymour, it's so much so Charles Parham, who is like idolized, was an extreme racist. He had a Bible school. Only white students were allowed inside the building. William Seymour was a student in this Bible school, and he had to go through the entire school listening through a crack in the door because he wasn't inside, allowed inside the classroom. And these are like the church leaders that were doing this. And so Charles Parham, he ordains William Seymour. He went through the school. He just he wasn't allowed. He ordains him to go, and William Seymour, he travels South, he goes down to uh, Los Angeles and because they were up in the north and other states. So he goes to Los Angeles, California, and he starts this little tiny mission, the Azusa Street mission. He starts this little thing. And because he's a black man, there's there isn't much expectation that anything's going to happen. He the the African-Americans in that time, they were all ran by white church leaders who just they saw them as second class citizens. It really was not until Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham was the first one to really promote a black person into ministry, like really give them a shot, give them a national platform. So that is not that long ago. And it, the Assemblies of God would not ordain African-Americans until the mid 1900s. And it was actually Billy Graham who completely shamed them because there was a black evangelist who had incredible anointing and power on his ministry. And the assemblies of God said, black people cannot be ordained ministers. And so he went to Billy Graham and Billy Graham said, yes, they can. And he ordained them. Uh, he ordained this man and uh, completely shamed the assemblies of God. And they ended up starting to accept African-Americans after Billy Graham did. And so they, this, William Seymour as you, when you read about the Azusa Street Revival, or those of you who know about it, oftentimes we forget the climate of what was happening at the time, the resistance against everything that they were trying to do. Just the fact that there's a black pastor and uh, he's, he's reaching out to white people was a big deal. So William Seymour, he goes, I won't go through the whole story, but they're seeking God. There's just a small handful of African-Americans in Los Angeles, California, seeking God. And God breaks out and crazy miracles start happening. And William Seymour, his whole heart, he said he wanted to see the color line washed away by the blood of Jesus. That, so he uh, invited white ministers to come preach and he would invite white people in the neighborhood to come to church. And they did. And it was, as far as I know, the first integrated, fully integrated church in American history. It was a huge thing. And uh, as a matter of fact, I have her name here. I want to make sure I say it. So um, he had a, this is just a crazy thing if you think about the times. During all of this, William Seymour, a black man, had a white woman secretary. And her name was Florence Crawford. 
And so Florence was, she was the church secretary. It was just wild at that. It was completely, it was considered an abomination in those times. Most of the, especially the white church leaders wouldn't go anywhere near the Azusa Street Revival, including Charles Parham wouldn't go, including all of these, I won't go into all of them, but a lot of the really big name people that we look up to wouldn't go to the Azusa Street Revival because they thought it was an abomination to have a black pastor ministering alongside white pastors. It was not, they didn't think that that was supposed to happen. And so this revival breaks out and Tens of thousands of people from all over the United States. They, I mean, they were coming from everywhere to come see the, see what God was doing. It was so powerful that the fire of God would be so visible on the entire church building that the fire department was called multiple times because people thought the building was on fire. But it was just the power of God. The glory of God was so physically manifest, like the Shekinah glory of God we read about in the Bible, was so manifest that the children played hide and seek in it openly inside the church meetings. It was this incredible, every healing miracle that you can think of was everything was happening. And it was mostly, this is the amazing thing, that revival was mostly led by teenagers. And we don't, most people don't know that. But what William Seymour would do, he was barely a part of the day-to-day stuff because it was all fueled by prayer. So William Seymour, he had an office in the upstairs of the, of the church, and he would go up there for like 12 hours a day. And all he would do, he would pray for four hours, come down, preach a sermon, go back up, and he would just send the teenagers out to pray. And they would be praying for the sick inside the cloud of glory with all these wild miracles happening. I have a book that's uh, it's called, I believe it's called I Saw the Azusa Street Revival. And it's just testimonies from living people who, I mean, most of the book's a little bit old, so most of them are probably dead now. But it was eyewitness people who, the teenagers who had been ministering there, sharing their testimonies of what had happened. It's incredibly powerful. And they, they share. So these teenagers are leading this revival and there's no racism in this church. And one little known thing about the Azusa Street revival, it was also the first revival. William Seymour was one of the first people to promote Latin Americans. He had Mexicans come ministering in his church, which back then was this huge, also a huge deal that there were Latinos. There was a whole Latino community within his church, which, which was unheard of to have blacks, Latinos and whites in one church, all worshiping God together. It was unheard of. And so these things are happening and they, I, I want to read some of the controversies. I, I mean, you have the cloud of glory in your church all day, every day. And yet here are some of the controversies that they had, major controversies that, would, that almost split the church. One of them was, should men wear ties? Because it was considered a frivolous and vain thing. It's a worthless thing to wear, so a sanctified holy man should not wear a tie. That was what they believed, which is kind of the opposite of today, right? Like if you're fancy, you wear a tie. But they thought it was ungodly for a man to wear a tie. And it was a huge thing. Men should not wear ties in church. There was a whole fight in the church over whether or not they should build a storm shelter on the church property because they said half the church said it was lack of faith to have a storm shelter. The other half said, well, what if there's a storm? <laughs> you know, where are we going to go? And it caused division. Like these are petty, little petty things. And one of the things that actually 
one of the controversies that they believe actually was the breaking point for the church, William Seymour had been single throughout the entire uh, revival up until that point. And he met a woman that he fell in love with and wanted to get married. And most of the church wanted him to stay single. And so when he chose to marry this woman, people left the church over it. And so when one of those, so, so I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but Charles Parham, I said he didn't, he came one time because it was so big. He wanted to see what was going on. Charles Parham shows up, went to one service and said, there's no way God is in this. He didn't like, he said he didn't like what he saw. So his solution, he planted a church right next door to steal the members from Azusa street. And started actively, along with several other white church, national church leaders, to dismantle and destroy the Azusa Street Revival. Because it was led by African Americans. So Parham, he plants a church next door to try and siphon off members. He's got more money. He's got more of everything. So he's able to do. So he starts siphoning off members. And somehow during all of this, he... Sw- whatever the word is, he... I don't know. I can't remember what the word is. But he gets um, Florence the white secretary, he convinces her that what she's doing is wrong and and that she needs to leave William Seymour. And the Azusa Street Revival, this is before internet, this is before it, the only way they were able to communicate was the Azusa Street, they had a a newspaper or a magazine that they sent out once every couple weeks or once a month. And uh, they had a, a mailing list. This mailing list was tens of thousands of people. And that it was through that the donations were sent in, and that's what sustained everything that they were doing. Well, Parham and the other leaders managed to convince Florence to steal the mailing list, and she did. She stole the mailing list. List. It was the only copy. There was no other ones. She stole the mailing list and went to work for Charles Parham. And when she did, the Azusa Street Revival instantly had no access to their supporters. They had no way to send out newsletters to let anyone know what was happening. So all of their support was instantly cut off. All of the white church leaders left, the church people started leaving the church. Then all the Latinos left the church, and they were back to the original core group. They had gone from tens of thousands of people to like 20 people over the course of just a few weeks because they had no way to communicate anymore. And after this happened, Azusa Street Revival is dead, and Charles Parham goes into—sorry, uh, uh, William Seymour goes into a deep depression. I mean, imagine this. You were just in the full-on glory of God. You just, with your own eyes, saw all of these crazy miracles happen, and yet all of this racism and all of this stuff destroys the revival. Seymour goes into a deep depression and ends up dying, and they they he— um, physically, he had a heart attack and died, but everyone around him said that he basically just gave up. And he, they, they, they say he died of a broken heart because he had been betrayed by all of the people that he had put the most trust in. And that's the most famous revival in our history is the Azusa Street Revival. But if you look at the incredible amount of controversies and sin and horrible things and humanity that was there, it... For me, it gives me hope because I'm like, that's awful. But at the same time, it means there's hope for me. There's hope for us, right? Like we have a chance. It means that w- the grace of God can oversee those things. And so that's, that's all I wanted to share. Just give you a little bit of background on some of these things. So thank you. Oh, boy, that was a lot of really good stuff. 
I feel like everything he just said, you could break apart and you could teach a million sermons on that. Mm. Um, wow. I think one of the one of the big things I want to echo that he actually just concluded with that I wrote I wrote down that same thing Alan, uh, but in in a different set of words that God wants to move towards our mess, mm-hmm. that He's not put off by our humanity He's not put off by our our humanity He He loves us He moves towards us even though we have all kinds of stuff going on in us and I definitely want you guys to hold on to that when we go through the rest of this, because some of it may be a little hard or a little pressing, and I, w- I want that to be what we hold fast to, is the character and nature of God is that he loves us unconditionally, mm-hmm. and that love is unyielding, it's unrelenting. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things, uh, after he was, as he's talking, I'm like, Lord, do we, do we really want revival? <laughs> like, <laughs> That is a lot to take in, and I'm like, oh man. But it, but it's part of the 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 part of this is counting the cost of revival, and and the outcome of each of those revivals is is that it changed the way that our nation functioned. It changed it for better. It brought uh, morality to places that weren't. It, it brought, um, it put. Um, like with Azuzu, it, it put a spotlight on sin in our nation that needed to change. It was wrong. And God, God, is, God is a God of justice, and he wants to bring justice to our nation. He wants to, you know, when Jesus came to earth, one of the first things he did is women were, were below dogs. Women were nothing. And the, the first thing he did is he elevated women because God says, that's an injustice. They're, they're my children, and I want to bring justice to them. I want to elevate them. And, and so I, I know that uh, one of the, the things that we talk about tonight is it's counting the cost of revival. It's counting the cost of, of what it cost before revival could break out, what it cost after revival broke out. Um, and, and one of the things that, that he said often is, uh, like with William Booth, is, is those that were following were not willing to pay the price. They weren't willing to count the cost. So because they didn't count the cost of revival, because they didn't pay, um, spend the time in prayer, it, it's what what led to the failure of what God brought. And, and so one of the things that we really want to bring forth tonight is, is counting the cost of revival. You know, um, it's easy to want reformation. Reformation is, is the blessing that comes from revival. Revival is hard. It costs you something. It, it, revival often the controversy usually springs up with believers. It doesn't usually spring up in our world. It, it's, it's going against the norm in the church because God is not happy with his bride in the way that they're functioning. And I don't know about you, but, but the bride of Christ that we are presenting in our world today is not the bride of Christ that he's coming back for. And so for, the, for me, the price is worth it because I I want to present a pure and spotless bride. And that can only come 
if if the church rises up and say, God, in me, bring revival. In my life, bring revival. Do whatever you have to do so that I am ready and, and I am willing to bring however many people, whatever it looks like, with me so that none would perish, that none would be burned up. So I, I just, I, we wanted to present the yuck of revival. We wanted you to know that that reformation is beautiful, but the, the cost to get there can be costly. And, and it's not even just the controversy. It's the price that you pay in your own personal life for revival. It's, it's not something that can, it doesn't just happen or show up. And so that is what we want to talk about tonight. That is, that is what we're going to segue in is, is the pre-cost of revival before revival even shows up. Um, are you willing to pay the price so that not just you but your family and your children's children come in and be a part of the bride of Christ that he's returning for? And so, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's the whole, you can't have the fruits, you know, without the gifts, and you can't have the gifts without the fruits. You have to have them both, and if we're not working on both, what are we presenting? It's a lesser gospel, and, and it's exactly what happens when we don't deal with character, and we just want power. That was very, you know, in William Booth, I think is what you said. They, they were infatuated with the power but did nothing with their character, and it led to moral failure. Yeah, and I also wanted to point out that with William, Bo or, uh, with William Seymour's in Azusa Street Revival, that at the end of, of the revival, the Shekinah glory lifted because the people all left. And, and in that, I just heard community. And one person can't do revival alone. Mm -hmm. Like one person can can pray for eight hours a day, mm -hmm. but one person isn't a revival. Right. One person is having a great prayer, quiet time with the Lord. <laughs> and, and, you know, they may experience personal revival, but that's not revival that leads to reformation. And we'll touch on that maybe towards the end. But I just want to highlight we need each other. We have to do it together. And so... I encourage you to link arms with your brothers and sisters that we are going to do this together, that we're going we're gonna to take each other into revival. It's, it's like the story in the Bible whenever Jesus was doing, uh, speaking in that one woman's house and the, the, the man that was paralyzed, his friends lowered him down from the ceiling. He couldn't have got there. He couldn't have got the healing without the friends. And the people that surround us are the ones that will either bring us closer to God or take us from God. And so we need to be that person for our friends and surround ourselves with, with friends that are going to carry us into the presence when, when we don't want to, when it does get hard, when right. persecution or others say something to you that, that leads you away. So um, <clears throat> I guess without further ado, let's jump into what happens when God is actually on the move. So we want to start with Hosea 10:12 as our key verse. It's one that really came up for us last week when we were praying and interceding. I think 
I, I did a little bit of research and I came across this verse and we read it and, and every part of the verse we went, oh, that's so good. And we just started to dig deeper into it and we're just absolutely wowed by this verse. And I'll tell you just a quick cool thing about it. I went home last Wednesday and I was, I was on, I was on um, Facebook reading my notifications and one of the women's group that I'm in posted this verse yesterday. And uh, it's actually the table in Punxsy, if some of you guys know that group. They posted this exact verse, and they said, God is, is bringing revival, and we have to break up fallow ground. And w- I was thrilled. I was like, angel, this is exactly what's God trying to do. So Hosea 10:12 says this, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And Angel's Bible's got a whole bunch of insight in it that she's going to share with us. Well, first, I find it interesting that it says, sow for yourselves Mm -hmm. righteousness. You know, what are you sowing in your life? Because whatever you're sowing, that's what's going to spring up. That's the seeds that you're planted. And you can be sowing righteousness in your life, or you can be sowing something else that is not righteousness. You can be sowing worldliness. You can be sowing your flesh, those things. What, what are you sowing? But it, the command here is sow for yourselves righteousness so that you can reap steadfast love. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't that what we all want mm-hmm. from our Savior? And then it goes on. It says break up your fallow ground. You know, it, again, it's, it's an action word. You want revival in your life? It's not something that just happens to you. There is action on your part. It's what you're sowing, and you have to be diligent about breaking up the fallow ground. And um, so in my notes, it says break up your fallow ground. It says unplowed ground is the soil that has been so neglected and become so hardened that it cannot receive seed. The people's hearts had become that hard spiritually. They needed to break it up and soften their own hearts and minds through sincere humility, Mm -hmm. sorrow for their sin, and true repentance. In other words, they needed, needed to have such a change of heart and attitude that they were willing to admit their sin, turn from their selfish ways, surrender to God, and follow his purposes for their lives. And so um, once you break up the foul ground, it says, for, for now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And, and, and when a man is set on fire with righteousness, it, it sets others on fire and, and, and causes a longing to come another. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who is so hungry and thirsty for God, and they're so on fire that you just want to be around them. Like, let me just sit with you. You know, because who wants to be with a Debbie Downer? <laughs> who wants to be with the most sucking on lemons? Just life sucks and it's terrible. You know, I love being around people who just can't can't stop talking about Jesus. Like I could do that all day long, all the time. It's my favorite thing to do, and and I just, it's what starts revival in a nation. It is is a man who is willing to be careful what he's sowing in his life. And begin to break up foul ground. And that's, that's the place that we want to launch into tonight is, is begin to, to look inward. Because it's what God is doing in our land. It is why we are in the, the season that we are in is because 
there are things in our lives that have to come into out out into the open. There is sin in our lives that he wants to expose. There's things and places in our lives that are hardened towards him that he wants to get um, soft. There, there are strongholds in our lives. There are, there are sorrows and traumas that have to be healed so that revival can begin to take place with you, so that our nation can be put back right with God. Yeah, and so she just alluded to it. The first thing we're going to go into is God exposes sin. That's one of the first things that he does whenever he's preparing the way for revival. And it was maybe a couple years ago now, we were interceding Sunday morning before service, and we were just asking the Lord for a word of what he wanted to do. And I remember uh, it was a morning where Pastor Mark wanted each of us to go to the, the four corners of the room. Mm-hmm. and. In the morning before we even did that, we prayed, and numerous of us, I think Ernie as well, got words about how God was exposing corruption in our nation. He was exposing sin within us, within our our church, within our community, and, and exposing the corruption of the world so he could purify it, so we could get it out of the way, so he could come through. And I remember we had a vision of a tornado blowing through a camp, and, and everything was in disarray. Um, and, and the Lord was calling us to, to put it in its correct place. But, but it showed what was askew. Mm-hmm. And so we knew that the Lord wanted first to expose sin. And so I want to share a verse with you from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13. It says, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so at the end of our days, the Lord is going to run all of our, all of our days, our actions, our thoughts through fire. He's currently doing it. A lot of us are under fire right now where you're experiencing a pressing, a squeezing, a purifying of the Lord. And he does it so that way revival can come. That's the first step that he does. First Corinthians three thirteen. Yeah, and, and what shortly happened after all of that that came down, in fact I think the one of the words that came forth that morning was that the hand of grace over mm-hmm. the body of Christ would lift in places where his presence wasn't welcome and sin was allowed. Mm-hmm. And, and we just, we began to see that happen in churches. And, and then we began to see things exposed in our nation, sin areas that begin to begin to become exposed. And you mentioned some of them earlier, and I can't think of any of them at the moment. But <laughs> there was just a lot of sin and corruption mm-hmm. f- in the nation that began to begin to begin become exposed of sin area in our land that um, we needed to deal with. Yeah, a, a lot of the Hollywood stories were breaking open at that time. The Pizzagate, the the adultery, the the different char- charges against. Okay, we're good. Charges against um, Bill Crosby and you know all that stuff, all the corruption from beloved people started to be exposed. And so we were seeing in the natural a mirroring of what God was doing in the spiritual. Mm-hmm. God, God was cleaning the earth like he was cleaning the bride. Mm-hmm. And I want to share another verse. It's um, Hosea 6, 11 through 7, 1. Mm-hmm. And we just felt really keen on Hosea. We, you know, we're not entirely sure why, but maybe we're just in a Hosea moment with the Lord. But we're, 
as we as we poured over this and as we prayed, the Lord just kept bringing us back to the book of Hosea and the story of Gomer and Hosea. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. We're just going to highlight some of the story. Um, yeah, but so in, in Hosea 6, 11 through 7, 1, it says, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people... When I heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria will be revealed, for they have dealt falsely. The thieves have broken in, and the bandits are raiding them. And as you scroll down, I want to share, um, oh, sorry, Hosea 4. We're just going to go backwards a little bit. Hosea 4, verses 1 and 2, 4 through 6 and 12. Um, and bear with us, this may seem like a hard word, but just hold fast that character of God, that he loves us so much, and he wants us to be healed, to be well, so we can be carriers of revival. Yeah. Amen? Y'all want to be revivalist carriers? Amen? Yeah. Thank you. Okay, hello. <laughs> if someone wants to turn the fan on, I know a lot of people are fanning themselves. We can turn the fan back on. If you'll hit it. Thank you. Okay, so Hosea 4, 1 through 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel. Um, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no longer any knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds, and there is bloodshed following bloodshed. Verse 4. Yet let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, you priests. So it's, it's the people of God that the Lord is chastising right now he says you will stumble by day the prophets will stumble by night i will destroy your mother verse six my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected my knowledge i reject you from being a priest to me and since you have forgotten the law of your god i will also forget your children i want to jump down to verse 12 my people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Mm. And this that's like a crazy thing to hear, right? We're like, what does that even mean? And so I just want to break down a little bit about the spirit of whoredom or prostitution. And what he's referring to right now is spiritual prostitution, it's when we commit adultery on God. When, when God is supposed to be our savior, the, the protector of our soul, the healer of our wounds, our guide, our, our, our light, when he is supposed to be our everything and we turn to another for answers, when we turn to another for protection, when we turn to another for guidance, when we seek the, the praise of people over the praise of God, when we are seeking anything from others that we should be getting from God, it's spiritual adultery. It's idolatry or spiritual adultery. And so um, just even, even deeper on that concept, though, is, is when, when we are, for lack of better words, prostituting our relationship with God, the relationship with God was always meant to be relational. It was meant to be a love encounter, a truth encounter with our creator. And when we take that relationship and we base it, when we bring it low and we treat it as a transactional means to get something from him, when we come to God only because our finances are low and we say, well, here I am again, God, I'm broke. I need you to help me. 
fill me up, give me, where's my ATM, God, send me money, or if we only come to God when, when we're sick and we need healing, if we only come to him when we're in crisis and we have trouble, mm-hmm. we are making our love relationship with God transactional, and it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be transformational. We were meant to be in covenant relationship with him. And so it hurts the father's heart when we only come to him to get something, when we seek his hand but not his face. And that was his, his grief over Israel, was they were only coming to him to get something. They were boasting outwardly that, that he was their God and that they were so close to God that they were priests, that they were lovers of the Lord. And he, and he says to them, like, you don't even know my laws. If I presented my laws to you, they would be foreign concepts to you. He was saying to them, you don't even know me anymore, and you're boasting that you do. Mm-hmm. And, and we just, when we, when we were reading over this, our hearts just leapt with, that is a serious issue in the church, mm-hmm. where we have people that claim to know God, that claim to be close to him, but if they were presented with the Ten Commandments, they would have excuses why that's not real anymore why that's not how it should be, how, how things are different now. And it doesn't matter what was in the Old Testament. Or, you know, if we presented um, the heart of God, they would turn their nose up and say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that for me. You know, that's not, that's not for today. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is the state of our current church. And the Lord is exposing those heart attitudes, those, those ways of thinking that are corrupt and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, I think even Angel had said that this concept of, of spiritual prostitution or spiritual adultery with God, it reduces the power of the cross. It reduces the power of Jesus' shed blood on our salvation. It, it reduces it to just a transactional, meaningless moment rather than something that was meant to be transformational that takes us deeper in an encounter with our, our, the lover of our soul, the creator of us. Yeah, and and so um, revival is on the brink, Mm -hmm. and and we get to participate in it, or we can be one of the ones on the sidelines critiquing it. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the things that God is doing in the season is He is exposing sin, and we, I don't know about you, but during COVID and up to now. He is just, like, things come to the surface, and I'm like, where did that come from, and what is that? And he's like, well, that's a little dirt inside your heart that needs to come to the surface, and you need to deal with it, and it needs to go. And, and so we get to choose. We can be like the children of Israel, and we can just go to God when things are tough. Or, or we can choose to say, God, I don't want anything in me that does not belong, that hurts your heart, because you loved me so much, and I want to love you back just as much. So you do whatever you have to do to expose me so that I become like you. And so in this season, he, there is things that he is exposing, not just in the church, not just in our nation, but in each of us. And we have to, we have to look at those things and be willing to walk through them. You know, um, one of the things that happens is childhood and those things is traumatic places. And so often as America, we just want to stuff things down so we can function and move forward. But by stuffing things down, we are not able to function the way that God wants us to function. When we stuff sin, when we stuff trauma, when we stuff things that he wants to expose, 
he can't bring revival to your heart. And so we have to be willing to say, God, I, I want you to transform me. I want to be different at the end of the day. I, when I come to church, I am not here to get anything. I am here to worship you. And if there's anything that blocks me from worshiping you, then I want it exposed. I want my yuck to be brought to the light. I love being corrected. I love being exposed to hard things that make me dig deeper. That's the attitude the believer today needs to have. We have to be a people that is willing to allow God to expose our sin at the, at the cost of our pride, at the cost of losing face. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been corrected this year. And, and I love it. It's not fun. Nobody likes to be corrected or, or told, you know what, you're really harsh. <laughs> you need to tone it down. You're not very nice. I, I love it because it exposes me so that he can transform me. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be a people that embraces exposure of sin. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the number one thing that God begins to do when he begins a movement in our nation. And so are you willing to count the cost of being exposed? Are you willing to allow yourself to step, allow yourself to be brought to light? The ugliness of the things that are in our closet, right? You know, we all have those closet things. I don't want anything in my closet. I want it brought out for the world to see so that it changes me, so that it's no longer there. Yeah, and not even just sin, but, you know, I just read this verse and, I feel like the Lord doesn't just go after sin. He goes after weaknesses in us. He goes after the inconsistencies in us to purify us, to make us more whole. And so in Hosea 6, 4, and then verse 6, he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. It's like the dew that goes away early. Mm. And in verse 6, he says, For I desire your steadfast love and not just your sacrifice. I want the knowledge of me rather than burnt offerings. And I just hear such such a, a beautiful heart of God that this is who he is. He is the one that, that draws us and beckons us closer. You know, we, we try to do it all right. We try to strive and do perfectly. And we try to show up and say, look, I saved face for this one, you know. And I, did, I, did, I finished the checklist, God. I got it all done. And he goes, don't you get it? That's not what I want. That's right. I just want you. I want your heart. I want all of you. And I want you to bring that weakness where you love me for a minute and then it gets hard and you give up. Mm-hmm. He says, bring that to me. I want that. Yep. I want your, your struggle. I want your weakness. I want you to bring it and cast it on my shoulder so I can have it and make you strong. And so it, what's really beautiful is at the end of Hosea, I think it's like verse uh, chapter 14, he says, um, he, you know, in, in these harsh prophetic books where the Lord is bringing judgment and where he's speaking out warnings over the nations, he always concludes with hope and, and a word of blessing, calling them back to him. And so he ends Hosea, and I don't remember the exact verse, I'm sorry, but I think it's in chapter 14. He says, I will be like the dew to you. So even where we are weak, where our love is like the dew and it evaporates and it goes away and, and it doesn't come back until the next day. He's like, I'm going to do what you can't do. I'll do it for you. And when he refers to it, it's as a refreshing water. 
And so he does what we can't do, and he does it incredibly if we're willing to bring to him not just our sin. Yes, bring your sin. Get rid of it. Let, him, let it bring him to the surface. But he wants also those inconsistencies in those weak places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, God's so good. Mm-hmm. So from that place, from exposing sin, he wants to bring us into purification. He doesn't just expose it to shame us. God promises in 1 John 1, 9 that if you confess your sin, if sin is brought to light, he heals it and forgives it. Like, that's his nature. He doesn't expose to shame. He exposes to heal. And so he wants to purify us. He wants us to weep, and he wants us to repent. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And oftentimes we mistake crying and being sad and just depressed and convicted as repentance. We think, oh, that hurts so much, and we cry and we feel bad about ourselves, and we throw us a nice pity party over the sin that so easily entangled us, and then we get up without any real change. And that is worldly sorrow that produces death because we stay in the sin. We don't change. It leads us to death. But a godly grief is where we're so sorrowful about it. We're so consumed with the way that we've grieved the the, the Holy Spirit or the Father's heart that it produces in us not regret, not shame, not doubt or confusion, but it produces repentance. And repentance, if you've heard Shelley talk about it, is metanoia. It means to change after being with. It's if you were walking in this direction, you switch directions and you're suddenly going this way. Repentance is we change this direction after having been with the Lord. So this godly grief, this grief that comes from the Lord, produces a, a 180 change in us that leads to salvation. It leads to the, the wholeness of our soul, our body, and our mind. And that's what the Lord is after. Yeah, um, one of the things that I truly believe, I believe that every revival starts with anguish over sins, not just sin, your sin, but sin of a nation. I, I believe for revival to break out in this house is we have to be, we, in this community, is, is we, we have, it's not just, um, oh man, that really stinks. I, I, it's, it's the, it's the, where it breaks you down because it's happening in your land. It's the anguish of sin. One of the things that, um, really wrecking me right now is the teens um, that we're working with in our church. It, it's, it's the lack of mothers and fathers in our land. And, and I'm so grieved over it that it's moved me to movement where I'm up interceding over it. And I'm crying out to God saying, God, you got to do something about this because I'm tired of seeing kids so broken. Mm -hmm. They're so little and so broken and it's just unjust. It's not right. And what can we do? And, and that is where captivated has really birthed inside of me is, is part of me. I just want to buy a house and take every kid home and my husband would kill me and I would die in the process because I just don't know if I could handle it. But 
But part of it is, I had this conversation with Jen, is, is I realized that part of my, my heart for working with women in prison is, is I want to train them how to be moms. Mm -hmm. I want to show them that there is a better way to be a mom and that, that if you're really a mom, if we can raise up moms and fathers who know how to be moms and dads, mm -hmm. it changes society. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's mm -hmm. that grief. It is that anguish of the sin in our land and in your life where it just, God, I don't want anything in me that separates me from you. I love you so much that I, I want complete fellowship with you. And that's, that's the anguish of sin that we have to get to so that we can repent. Yeah, and so like she just alluded to, there's two different kinds of this repentance. There's the repentance for our personal sins, and then there's this thing called... Um, identificational repentance. I know it's a mouthful. It's identificational repentance. And it's what she just described, and we best see it through the prophets, and especially Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. And this identificational repentance is where you are not the one who caused the sin, you're not the one who is actively sinning, but you identify with the sin on behalf of those who cannot repent for themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's inter it's intercessional. It's crying out for the nation of unbelievers because unbelievers aren't going to show up on God's front door and saying, hi, I'm a sinner, I repent. Not until, of course, they hear the gospel and they're called, but we can intercede for them. We can weep for them and we can identify with that sin on their behalf before the Lord and ask the Lord, forgive me. That's why we see the prophets. The prophets, for example, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, but when he was before the Lord, he said, I am a man of unclean lips and I am from a nation of unclean lips. And so he identified with the sin of the nation, even though he was a prophet. He, he, his mouth was for the Lord. His mouth, he was the, the Lord's mouthpiece. He wasn't actively sinning in the way the nation was. But he identified and repented on their behalf. And so we have that authority through Christ and, and to be an intercessor, to cry out for our nation, to cry out for the sins, to cry out on behalf of the children and, and on behalf of the parents and the system and where it's corrupted and broken. We have that ability to stand in the gap. And I think we can have two responses. We can be angry about it, but then we sin because then we start judging, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, that's the, that's the fleshy response of frustration with the way things are. And we begin to complain about things with no solutions. And, and we, we are the ones with the mind of Christ. And he has a solution for every problem in our society. Instead of complaining, we need to be a people on our knees asking him for solutions. If you're passionate about something, if you're like I am with the children, there's a reason that I'm passionate about it. It's because God wants to give me a solution. And, and it's the same with you. If you are passionate about something and, and you tend to be judgmental towards those things, like I often am, it's because there's a solution that God wants to place inside of you that you can be the change in, in your city, in your community. And so let's be a people, instead of looking down our noses at the problems and those that are causing the problems, mm -hmm. be the ones that stand in the gap and say, God, forgive, forgive us for that. Show me how I can change it. What can I do to be the difference? And, and crying out and have anguish for it.
Yeah, and I want to run with that, and I want to take us to Jonah 3 real quick. Um, and I'm going to, I just had a great revelation from what you were saying. So I want, I want to read you Jonah 3, verses 6 through 10. And this is a picture of, because I, I don't want to quickly overlook the fact that we need to weep and repent for our own sin. We, we, when was the last time you cried over something wrong you did? When was the last time you felt so convicted it softened your heart? If it's been a long time, I'd encourage you to check in with the Lord and see if you got a wall up. And, and if you're saying, you know what, I don't want you to make me feel bad. I only come to you so I can feel good. Mm. Sorry if that stepped on your toes, but you may need to change a little bit of that relationship with him. Okay. And so I want to read you this passage. Okay, I'm going to get ahead of myself. So in verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, personally, they took personal accountability for their actions, for the violence that was in their own hands, not for their neighbors, not for their brother, not for their father, for their own violence in their hands. And, and so we absolutely have to do that. But as she was saying that about, you know, to be the change uh, in, in our in our community, in the people that we're around, we have to we have to cry out to God, right? And so here in this passage, it's the king who proclaims an issue to fast and pray. But do you know what Second Peter says about all of y'all? <laughs> all y'all, I know. Uh, it says that you are a nation of kings. You are a nation of priests. And so each of you, in your own right, are a king because you've been granted authority through Jesus Christ to influence those that you're around. So think about this. What if, after you took care of your own house, your own spirit, you cleaned house here, what if you issued a proclamation, a.k.a. living as a, as, as, as a living sacrifice, you were a model to those around you. You modeled the lifestyle of joyful repentance to everyone you were around. And you issued an influencing effect over everyone in your, in your dominion, in your friend group, in your family circle, that the Lord was coming soon, that the kingdom was at hand. If you harnessed the authority and the influence that the Lord has given to you through Jesus Christ to share the good news, to call them to repent, we would have completely transformed friend groups. We would have completely transformed workplaces. If we lived as that living sacrifice, modeling joyful repentance, we could absolutely change things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I, I will challenge you to say that I couldn't come up with a solution until I dealt with the sin inside of me that was looking down my nose at the women that were not being the mothers that they should be. And I, I had to deal with the broken places inside of me so that I begin to anguish over the sin of our land instead of 
complaining and being frustrated and judgmental about it. Yeah. And so Angel had two really cool quotes on um, prayer. Do you want to read those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one was from J. Edwin Orr who said, history is silent about revivals that, not, that did not begin with prayer. There are no revivals that ever took place that didn't start with prayer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ravenhill said this, I'll tell you the secret of getting revival in the church. Find a half a dozen people that know how to groan in prayer mm-hmm. and will revive will break out. And one of the things is when I read that, I immediately went back over my life and realized that every single time I had a revival in my life, it was bathed in prayer because I was spending a whole lot of time on my face with Jesus, a whole lot of time in his presence, a whole lot of time in intercessory prayer with a group of women in this church and men. And every single time that we would spend any time in prayer, revival would break out in our lives. And it's where a lot of the vision and dreams over this church came from was mm-hmm. in a time of intercessory prayer um, many hours. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you're thinking, like, what am I supposed to be praying about for that long? How does anyone fill their prayer calendar with four to eight hours worth of stuff? Well, a good place to start would be in these two, in these two concepts of, of your own sin, your own weakness, your own inconsistencies, and interceding for the sin of your nation, the sin of your community, uh, for for the wounded places in your community. I mean, you don't just want a solely self-focused prayer life because that's selfish, and you're not going to get very far because if you look inward for too long, you're not going to see Jesus. So you you have to look at Jesus, and he points something out. You look at it, and you look back at him, (laughs) okay? You don't look in and stay in because if you stay in there, it gets dark real quick. Uh, Trust me. Okay, so you want to lock eyes back with your creator because the creator is going to create the standard for you, right? And so as you look at his eyes of fire, he's going to point out places to go, people to talk to, people to pray for. And then we go there. We go there. Um, And so that last last quote that she shared about um, revival really beginning with people who know how to groan in prayer, that groaning in prayer is also based in hunger to know God, Mm -hmm. right? And if prayer at its simplest, most basic form is communication, you're really just talking to God. So if you exhaust all your sin and the sins of all the nation and, and, all, the glo- and all the nations of the globe, if you exhaust all of that in all of your prayer time, why, then just talk to him. <laughs> just ask him questions. I remember one time, this is quite silly and you can laugh with me. I remember one time, I didn't know what to pray about. And so I was like talking to him about heaven. I was like, am I going to fly in heaven? Like, what's that going to be like? Can you, can you give me any hints? And <laughs> I'm pretty sure he just laughed at me. I don't think he answered that question because I don't, I didn't get an answer. I don't, I don't remember. But you know, you can just talk to him as you talk to a friend. And so with that, that concept of hunger, I want to point out the verse Proverbs 27, seven, one, the one who loathes honey is full. Or to say that one who is full will loathe honey but to one who is hungry, everything, even bitter, is sweet. I'm going to put it in, in Katie's translation. If you're full of yourself, you're not going to be able to taste the goodness of the Lord. But if you're hungry, if there's room, if you've made room for God in yourself, if you've set yourself aside and you've sought the Lord, even the hardships of life are going to be sweet. You're going to be able to find contentment in sickness. You're going to be able to find contentment in frustrated plans. You're going to be able to find contentment in uh, busyness. Mm -hmm. 
You know, and I was thinking of, uh, what did I write? Oh, the Medal of Honor in the Salvation Army. When Alan shared that story and how their, their suits were covered in rotten eggs. Can you imagine how bad that smelled? I mean, how do you not vomit? sniffing yourself, sun-dried, rotten eggs on you. They counted it in honor. They didn't just say, yeah, it sucks. Like, I've been sacrificing for the Lord for 25 years, and he ain't done anything for me. Like, I'm broke, I'm poor, my wife left me, I've given everything I own to the Lord, and, like, here I am. I'm stinky and dirty and tired. Man, I'm a poor man. No, they didn't have that attitude at all. They were like, it's an honor to be persecuted for my Lord. Let him throw more eggs. I've... I didn't wash it just so they could throw more. Bring it on, baby. They were ready. They counted even that bitter, that bitter persecution as though it was sweet because they were hungry for more of the Lord. Yeah, the best way to have sin exposed in your life (laughs) is to go through a really difficult season (laughs) Mm -hmm. because all kind of ugly will come up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The best way to have sin exposed in your life is rub elbows with people who frustrate you. Because uh, Dr. Shelley often tells me, you know, if, if a person that you're with causes something like anger to stir up inside of you, the problem isn't the person, the problem is you. It means that there is something off in you that needs to be healed so that you can love the person that frustrates Mm -hmm. you in front of you. It's how you get to the place of being able to love your enemies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to face the yuck inside of you. So needless to say, now when I'm with people that annoys me, like it, it happens. Community being married, there are times I'm sure Josh or Rhonda annoy each other. I'm telling you, there are days that I can't stand my husband. He drives me absolutely bonkers. But it's in those moments now that I say, what is he doing Uh that's hurting me and Mm -hmm. what is the root of that pain? Why does it bother me so much that he's doing this? And it often goes back to a place, and it's the same takeout for me from the enemy every single time, is when I don't feel like I'm being heard or listened to. Mm. Every single time that he annoys me and I want to punch him in the face, because I do go there, I I have visions and (laughs) tell him, I'm like, you're lucky I'm a Christian right now, Um, but... But I, I, it's, it's in those moments, it's always, every single time I now recognize it's because he's not listening to me and he's not hearing what I have to say. And so I know now that that is my trigger. And I, I know that I need to continually go to that place. Lord, where do I need healing in that place? You know, so just, a, it's fun. Those hard places can be fun because you know that God is doing something in you. He wants to do something in you. He wants you to be the best you. Mm-hmm. He wants you to be the best version of him in you. Mm-hmm. And, and in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, is you have to be willing to stay in the community. You have to be willing to do the hard. You have to be willing to go to the frustrating places. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. First Peter 4, 12 through 17. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange is suddenly happening to you. 
That's pretty cool. But rejoice because to the degree that you share in Christ's sufferings, you will also rejoice and be glad in the glory that is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil don't doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So how we endure these hard people, hard situations, the exposing of our sin, the choice to repent or not, how we handle that is is going to mark how unbelievers are going to handle it too. Amen. If the bride handles it poorly, how much worse is a sinful, evil word, world going to handle it? Like we're called to be the light. We're called to be the example. We can model how to come low and humble before the Lord, to receive correction, to be changed inwardly, and to move outwardly with the love of Christ. We have that choice. We set the pace. Like, do y'all get the power and authority you have because of Jesus? He has called us to be strong and powerful because of him. Not separate. What? We don't use it. I love y'all, but rise up. Let's go. We can do this. We can change the world. And I'm going to tell you that every week till the end of August. So please keep coming back so I can keep reminding you. Mm -hmm. Because we can do this. God wants us to be the change. We have the authority to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, When I think of a nation changing, I always go to um, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Mm -hmm. and Abednego. They were prisoners of war in their enemy's camp, and they changed a nation from the top down. And it's because they embraced the difficult. They didn't whine about it. They didn't complain about it. They didn't curse it. They embraced it, and they loved their enemy. They loved their enemies, and it changed a nation. One person can change a nation. One person can set into motion the abomination of slavery and one person that is willing to count the cost and do what it takes can set the course for children no longer being an orphan one person can change an empty prison cells today we've got to get back to the fact that 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 is that is what God wants to do in our land he wants to shut the bars down he wants to empty empty out the prisons he wants children to have fathers and mothers he wants mothers to rise up and love their children the way they were created to love their children yeah so the last stage we basically have already like we're in there now but is, is that God wants to move us out of the weeping and repenting stage into change, into revival inwardly and reformation outwardly. So, um, Angel, can you read those quotes that you have? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Charles Finney says this, No doubt millions have gone to hell while the church has been dreaming and waiting for God to save them without the use of means. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. We, are, we want the world to be saved. We want our nation to be different. 
and we're praying on it and we're hoping about it, we're dreaming about it, but we ain't doing anything about it. Yeah, and so that revival does have to start with us. We have to cultivate a pure heart, mm-hmm. clean hands. That That's our job. That's our responsibility. You can only control you. You can't control your neighbor, your brother, your mother, no one. So you take care of you. You make sure that you're clean before the Lord. Mm. And, and part of that, I mean, Angel's already alluded to it, but we have to destroy those strongholds, those mm-hmm. walls that we have before the Lord, the areas where we say, nope, that's mine, God. I think I'll be my own God for now. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Got to get rid of that. Mm. Mm. Spiritual adultery, anywhere that you're going to get wholeness, satisfaction, um, deliverance. Uh, If Netflix is your saving grace after a long work day, you're banking on the wrong gospel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like anything that is taking the place that God should have in your life, you have to surrender that Mm -hmm. and come out of adultery, spiritual adultery. So we do that revival work in us. Uh, we repent, we weep, we cry out. The Lord is the one who changes us. He's the one who cleans us. And and from that place, we begin to step into reformation. We cultivate a change around us. So it can't just stop with you. You know, we talked last week about stewarding revival well. And in order to steward revival well, you have to give it away, right? We talked about favor. We talked about money. We talked about the multiplication of the blessings of the Lord. The only way that the Lord multiplies our blessings is if we are generous, if we hold our hands open. Mm -hmm. He can only multiply it that way. If we're stingy and we hold fast to it, we cut off the flow of God. Like just, it's it's a spiritual principle, super basic. If God blesses you because he's generous and you become selfish with the blessing, he's like, well, that wasn't just for you. <laughs> okay, so I okay, so I know that if I give to you, it only goes to you. Okay, noted. And if and if he cultivated a gift for you that was for many, if he if he created you to be the mother of a nation, the the father to nations, the father to many children, and you only hold it for yourself, God says, okay, I can't trust you with it. So you don't get more until you grow, until you repent, until you cultivate a changed heart. Then I can trust you and give more to you. Okay, so who, he who is faithful with little is faithful with much. That, that, is the, that is the principle of multiplication. We have to give away that revival that we cultivate in us. And that, that's what creates that reformation around us. Absolutely. Yes. Amen. Amen. Don't throw your gift away. <laughs> Good word, Jeannie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another quote that Finney says that I love, and it's harsh, but it says, if a church doesn't have a burden for sin- souls, it's, con- um, it's considered backslidden. And I, I think we've just, we've got content with getting to heaven. Mm-hmm. And we don't care if anybody mm-hmm. else around us goes. I'm going to be even more blunt. If you only love yourself, are you even a Christian? Because the Bible says they will know us by our love. And it's not your self-love. It's not your self-care, how good you take care of yourself. That's not what marks us as a Christian. It's our selflessness. It's our ability to be patient. It's our ability to be gentle, to be compassionate, to reach out to those that are hurting around us. 
And if we can't do that, we're not showing the world Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's true. So now that we've properly stomped on all of your toes, um, <laughs> we're going to have a little bit of reflection time, mm-hmm. unless you have anything else. Nope, I was just going to do the jolt, too. Great. That's exactly where we're going. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'll read you. <laughs> Joel, too. It's <laughs> my job tonight is Bible girl. Could be a cool superhero mode, like, Anyway, (laughs) Joel 2, verse 13. Uh, Prepare your toes. This one hurts too. Okay. Um, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Yeah, and so this article that I read today was said this, that the Hebrew custom of tearing one's clothing was an expression of extraordinary emotion, usually of grief, terror, and horror. And indeed, we should be grief-stricken and horrified when we sin against our holy God. But instead of tearing your clothes or even changing them, Joel is pleading with you to do the same with your heart, that your very being, to rend them, he is calling you to repentance. Real repentance is not just feeling sorry for your sin. Real repentance means changing your heart, and a complete change of heart requires more than a partial surrender. Giving God 99% is not enough. You can't keep even one small part of yourself. This is an all-or-nothing decision that we must make. Mm. And so tonight, we just want to call you in and, and, and see where the Lord is hammering you. <laughs> see see where it, what is God asking you to get out of your life? And where are you neglecting and ignoring the places that he's pricking at that keeps rising up and you just keep pushing down? Mm -hmm. He wants us to be grieved over our sin. And so tonight we just, we're going to play a song. um, It's a newer worship song that Katie came across. And it's actually a word we just really feel like Mm -hmm. in this season, metamorphosis, God is hammering our hearts. He's Mm -hmm. saying, "I, I need you to change. I'm longing for you to change. I, I want you to become the, uh, the original design that I had for you. And in order for that to happen, I need to hammer away at the things that don't belong. And so we want you to just bow your head and close your eyes and, and just begin to ask God, what is it that I need to be dealing with? Yeah, go ahead, Dad. That's right. That's right. Amen. Amen. Did everybody hear that? That um, the Lord has been convicting my dad in some areas in his life, and he said, I won't be around long enough for you to be able to get all of that out of my life. 
and God said, that's a lie. And he was reminded of a woman he, that walked into the church that he was ministering at who was a prostitute, drug addict, and in an instant, everything was broken off of her. And he said, that's the kind of God that I am, that in revival, in an instant, it can all become. And, and here's the thing. Those of us who tend to strive to become better, there is nothing about striving that gets rid of sin. It's, it's, it's a place of intimacy, face-to-face time with Jesus that sin is taken away in your life. He may say, you need to fast over this. There's things in this season I have had to fast over in my life to get it out because it, flesh can be strong and I can be weak. And so I had to flash over those things. Um, I'm reminded of the 75 hard, you know, as the Lord always mirrors in the natural what he's doing in the spiritual. And and, uh, there's a huge push in our world on um, self-discipline. And there's a ton of people doing 75 hard and and these lifestyles that that cause us to be healthier and more um, better all the way around, better in shape and all of those things. It's the same thing that God is doing in the spiritual that is happening in the natural. He wants you just as spiritually fit as you are physically fit. So, so what are you doing to become spiritual fit? Some of you, it could just be one moment in prayer and it drop off in an instant. Some of us, because we're stubborn, very stubborn, it, it required more for me. I had to do a lot of fasting and praying in this season. So what it is, but that's, that's where intimacy is so important in your life. Yeah. I just want to share um, maybe two more verses with you. Um, specifically, the word that we got was about the hammer. And there's actually a Bible verse that goes with that. Can you believe it? Uh, Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. And it says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes when we deliver words like this, we, I mean, even beforehand, we were like, God, this feels a little harsh. This feels a little rough. Like, are you sure you want to say all this? Like, we don't. uh." And when he showed us at first, we were like, when it comes from the Lord, there's grace for it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hope you know our heart is never to hurt you guys. Our heart is never um, to speak condemnation or shame to you guys. Our heart is that we would speak the word of the Lord to you and that it would produce righteousness in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if at any moment you're like, she's just being mean to me, I mean, maybe maybe check your heart because I bet it was the Holy Spirit that was like, hey, can we mm-hmm. fix that? Because mm-hmm. our heart really isn't to be mean. But if you you know need a sidebar with us, we come to us. Mm-hmm. And one last verse I want to share with you is 1 Peter 1, 7. And it says, um, so that the tested genuineness of your faith that is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so that's just our heart for you guys, is that the Lord, as he's pressing, as he's hammering, that it would result in this most genuineness and preciousness of faith, that at the end of the day, you would say, blessed be the Lord, and that all that comes out of you, whether it's weakness or sin or inconsistencies, that as it comes out and is purified, it would glorify the Lord, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to pray for us. Mm-hmm. You good? Yeah, I'm going to, after you've done praying. I have a word as we stand. Okay. I just.
just want you to, to just lock eyes with Jesus. Mm. I want to encourage you to gaze upon his face. I don't know if you've ever tried that, tried to envision his face, but I want to encourage you to do that. And um, if you've grown up with broken concepts of a father or authority figures, it might be hard to do that. Uh, but I want you to know that your father looks at you with the most grace and peace and love. And so the, the face that's going to look back at you, the face of God is going to be full of love for you. Mm. And so I want you to find that rest and that refuge in the love of the love of our God, the love of our Father, the love of Jesus, the love of the Holy Spirit for you. And Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Mm. Jesus, we thank you that you are an all-consuming fire and that your desire is us. You don't want our sacrifices. You don't want our to-do lists or our accomplishments. Mm -hmm. God, e even those things that we do for you are secondary. God, I thank you that more than anything, you just want our hearts. You want us to know you. You, you desire intimacy with us. You desire connection with our hearts. Mm -hmm. God, and for some of us, it's been really hard to connect with you. God, for some of us, there's been just so much shame that it terrifies us to look at you for, for fear of rejection. But Father, we know that you are not a rejecting God. You are an unconditional, loving, steadfast, slow to anger God. And you welcome us at our worst. You welcome us when we're in the pits of despair. You welcome us to come close when we're banged up and bruised and bleeding. Jesus, you welcome us. And so, Father, we come. We just want to come before you. And we ask you to peer into our hearts. We ask you to hammer out some places. God, like I envision a, a blacksmith sticking the sword in the fire and bringing it over to the anvil and hammering it until it's straight. God, it, I know you're just straightening us out. You're just making us more pure, more beautiful, more effective, sharper, able, able to cause damage to the enemy's kingdom. Mm -hmm. God, you're creating us for a purpose, and you're honing us for that purpose. God, would you reveal those areas that are hard, the areas that we complain, the people that are difficult, the areas where we struggle to grasp contentment? God, would you reveal those areas? God, and would you lead us to repentance with your loving kindness? Father, lead us. Lead us to repent, God. We don't want anything to hinder your love for us. We don't want to hinder our love for you. God, would you lead us to repent for our attitudes and words spoken, for vows we've made, for judgments, for offenses we've carried, God, would you forgive us that we would be clean and righteous and pure before you? Holy Spirit, lead us into the love of the Father. Lead us into the, the deep understanding of forgiveness. Jesus, you are merciful. You are steadfast. God, we want to reflect you. Help us. Help us where we're weak, Lord. Help us where we're inconsistent. Help us where we struggle, Lord. We just want to love you, Jesus. We need your help.
Yeah, so I'll have Alex play that song and just, um, just keep gazing at Jesus because one of the things that, that as a mom, we don't correct to bring judgment and shame, and Katie prayed it. It, it. It's because we love, and that is exactly the heart of the Father tonight. It's because of love that he reveals. So just allow him to reveal, and then allow yourself to grieve the sin in your heart and the separation that it brings with you and God. So go ahead, Alex. So our hope is, is that tonight um, the Lord begin to reveal things. I don't know about you, but I had to write down mine. I'm a, I have to go back. <laughs> so there were some things that he revealed in my heart that I need to go back to and deal with. So um, don't, this is a journey that you're on. And so make sure that you continue on journey with Jesus throughout the week with this until until the weakness becomes a strength or until the sin area in your life is completely demolished. So do whatever it takes to burn out the strongholds that hold you back this week and, and stay on journey, stay in process, lean into the hard, do the difficult, count the cost, and go in. And remember that you're so loved. And he just wants to love you more and more. So just let him. And we hope to see you next week. Have a good night.